Well, I want you to uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, chapter one. We'll be taking a slight break from our study in the book of John, continuing that on in June, uh, in January. But I want to uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians in this last Sunday of the year. As I thought about what we ought to fix our minds on. As we come to the end of 2013, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, our scripture reading will come from the first 10 verses, and this morning we will be able to cover likely the first three. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The text reads, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report what, what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, grant to us insight, illumine our minds and our hearts, and open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it can be difficult to have a thankful heart. Sometimes it can be thankful, difficult to have a thankful heart when things especially are not going well. When you've lost your job or when your kids are not behaving, it's hard to have a thankful heart when there's tragedy. Hard to be thankful when finances sometimes are tight. Or maybe this Christmas, 
as you sat around the tree and opened the gifts, and you opened and saw that box with an ugly Christmas sweater, it's hard to have a thankful heart with something sometimes you may not like. But God commands us to be thankful. As you know, and as we've spoken of frequently in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the scriptures tell us, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And being grateful is a matter of a change in attitude, not just a change or only a change in one's circumstances, because being thankful in all circumstances is a truly a change in perspective, isn't it? As you know, tax season is going to come up very soon, but we can be thankful for the fact that we have a job, perhaps, that does require us to pay taxes. Or perhaps after the holidays, you find that your clothes are too tight. Well, be thankful. You've had more than enough food to eat. Or perhaps you have friends who always complain about the government. Well, be thankful for the fact that you have free speech here in this nation. Some have a lawn that needs to be taken care of, windows that need to be cleaned, gutters that are clogged from the leaves. Well, be thankful for the fact that you have a home to live in. Some perhaps are irritated by how others sing. Well, be thankful that you can hear. Or perhaps you don't really want to get up in the morning and you feel irritated by the fact that your alarm clock goes off and you have to get up. But be thankful for the fact that you're alive another day to live for God. A thankful heart is a matter of one's attitude and one's perspective for the things that God has done for us. But if it remains there, just as the things that God has done for us or the things that God has given to us, then your gratitude might be temporary at best. Rather, perhaps our thankfulness should be even deeper. Aaron Burgess writes, Lois Stalling is the most thankful person I know. Lois goes to our church at Oak Hills. When Lois was in the prime of her life, she had a stroke and was confined to a wheelchair. She is still mentally alert, but she cannot walk and do a lot of other normal activities. She lives in a convalescent home. The only time she gets out, really gets out, is once a week, and that is to come to church. The highlight of her week is Sunday morning when someone comes from our church to pick her up. One day, I went to pick up Lois. It is sometimes hard to get her into my car because it is so compact. We could not get her in if it wasn't for her slide board, a fiberglass board that fits under her legs and allows her to slide from the wheelchair to the car pretty easily. It is nothing fancy, just an inexpensive piece of fiberglass. Well, one day, Lois pulled me aside and said, Aaron, you know what I thank God for every day? I said, what, Lois? And she said, I am thankful for my slide board because then I can come to church. 
unquote. I don't know if worshiping God together as a church family is the highlight of your week, but for mine, it certainly is. I look forward to Sundays and the tradition of my family. We've always made it a point. Whether we're on vacation or out of, the, out of town or whatever it may be, we always try to find believers someplace in some church somewhere that we can gather in order to worship the Lord. My family's always tried to make accommodations for that, no matter where we are, and it's a tremendous, tremendous blessing to meet extended family members no matter where we are in the world, to be able to worship with them, to be able to be with them, to sing with them in whatever language they are singing with. And it is a joy. It is a joy, and I am so grateful for God's church because they are a part of my family. There's a kindred spirit when you meet a believer. It doesn't matter where they are in the world to know that they have come to honor the God that we all love. And here in the text today, Paul expresses, he expresses to God that very feeling of gratitude for the Thessalonian church. And it overflows in his prayers of gratitude to God because of what God has done. The context in which we look at this particular passage is that Paul has come, come to write them this letter, this letter of encouragement, because he had ministered there and he had to leave because of difficulties that were there, because of those that were stirring up trouble. And he went to Berea, 50 miles away, and he had a wonderful ministry there as well because the Bereans were very noble-minded. They conferred with the scriptures to be sure that what Paul was saying was true. And he was ministering there until some Jews from Thessalonica came and began to stir up trouble there as well. But what happened was that he left again, but he was able to leave Silas and Timothy behind. And his concern and his love for the church at Thessalonica caused him to send Timothy back. Sent Timothy back to find out how the church was doing. And Timothy returned. He returned with a good report about how the church was doing. And Paul received the good news about the church. And he writes this epistle because of things that were happening within the church. Some still faced persecution from the Gentiles in chapter 2, it notes, but they were still faithful. Some were thinking that Jesus was going to come at any time, and so they'd quit their jobs. And actually, their time was not being used well, and some were disorderly. Some were concerned about what would happen to some of their loved ones who had died before Christ came back. Others, there were still some that were hostile, and some were misusing their spiritual gifts. But despite all of these issues, Paul, by and large, has a tremendously positive feeling about this church. The sentiment within this letter, as we're going to see, is, I am so thankful for you and what God has done in the church. I am so grateful, and you're doing well, 
Continue to do better. And these are the things I want to encourage you in. And that is a wonderful sentiment. If any of us were sitting at the church in Thessalonica, we would be encouraged by the Apostle Paul who writes this letter with a tenor that is so very positive, encouraging them to continue on in what they are doing. Correction. Yes, a few things here and there, but by and large, such a positive tone in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And after his greeting here, we will see the reason that he is so grateful. The results which are spiritual, which God has done within the life of the church. And in his greeting here, we look, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. I mentioned Paul's sentiment was very positive. We'll see even later that positive note. But in other letters in the New Testament, it doesn't begin so warmly. To the church at Corinth and to the church at Galatia, he identifies himself much differently. He identifies himself as an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 1, for example, he says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And to the Galatians, in Galatians 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In some letters, he begins like that, saying that he was an apostle appointed by God and that he was writing this letter, bolstering the authority that he had to come because in those churches, they had major issues. And he writes correctively to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. But in this book, he just addresses himself as Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, putting him on par with his co-workers in Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians, he writes, and he gives thanks for three particular reasons, for three particular spiritual results of what God has done. Three particular reasons, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Their work of faith their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. He says in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people look at the church like a business. They look at it like a corporation. And they measure success by the means, by the numbers, by the bottom line. But Paul, he's grateful to God. And here's what he writes to them about what God's work has done. It's not superficial. It is not because of their programs. It is not because of their building or because of money. Paul is not giving thanks for outward worldly circumstances. He is thankful for what God has done in and through them because they are exhibiting fruit. The fruit of their salvation, which is in these Three things, and he gives thanks. First of all, for their work of faith. Or, grammatically, it is their work produced from their faith. The first thing that these Thessalonians displayed was their good works. 
which stemmed from their faith. Their faith produced within their heart a desire, a desire to do things for God because true, genuine, saving faith exhibits the fruit of good works. It is the result of truly who they are on the inside. Hal Karp writes an article entitled Roadside ER about a physician named Dr. Scott Kurtzman. He's the chief of surgery at Waterbury Hospital. He was on his way to deliver an 8 a.m. lecture when he witnessed, the article says, quote, one of the worst crashes in Connecticut history. A dump truck whose driver had lost control flipped on its side and skidded into oncoming traffic. The resulting accident involved 20 vehicles. Four people died. Kurtzman immediately shifted into trauma mode. He worked his way through the mangled mess of people and metal, calling out, who needs help? After about 90 minutes, when all 16 victims had been triaged and taken to area hospitals, Kurtzman climbed back into his car, drove to the medical school, and gave his lecture two hours late. Over the years, Kurtzman had stopped a half a dozen at a half a dozen crashes and assisted in three. Quote, a person with my skills simply can't drive by someone who's injured, says Kurtzman. I refuse to live my life that way, unquote. You hear that story and you think to yourself, well, of course, he's a doctor. He's supposed to help people. Doctors make a commitment to help people and not hurt people. After all, if he said he was a doctor and there were people who were bleeding, who were screaming, who were under duress, and he just walked by them, you would question whether or not he's truly a doctor at heart. The same is true of you and I as Christians. To put it more plainly, a true, genuine Christian has a desire, has a desire within their heart that is God wrought, that desires to do what pleases God. And if a person doesn't want to serve God, doesn't want to live for God, wants to live their own life, doesn't care about things that God cares about, then you would question too. What is it truly in their heart? They may say that they believe, but in reality, their faith is worthless. As James chapter 2, 19 and 20 says, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, verse 20, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? 2.26 in James, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Like Dr. Kurtzman, a Christian understands, you see, who their identity is, who they are in Christ. A person who knows my Savior simply can't live for themselves and do nothing I refuse to live my life that way. Is that what you would say? Like 
Dr. Kurtzman. True faith motivates good works. And these Thessalonians had exhibited that. Secondly, labor motivated their love by their love. Their labor of love, their labor came because, you see, their motivation was proper. Labor motivated properly is not drudgery when it comes to ministry. It's not a grind. It's not a burden slogging it out to serve God. No, if you genuinely and you unselfishly love someone or love something, then you will do it. You'll invest the time. You'll invest the money. You'll invest the resources, and it won't be begrudging. You love something. You won't have any difficulty doing it, right? If you love something, then it will come as a joy. I mean, you think about it. How many of your children on Christmas morning said, oh, how boring. Do I have to open gifts today? Or, you know what, do I have to play video games? Or do I have to watch TV? Or some of you adults, do I have to have coffee again this morning? You mean, do I have to stay home from work again? No, not at all. You love those things. Why? Because those things bring you joy. Because you love video games or playing or being away from work or whatever it is, staying at home. It's not a chore to you. Nobody has to encourage you to do so, at least for most of you. In fact, you love it so much you're willing to spend money and to entertain yourself and to pamper yourself and to feel good. And the problem is, right, we love ourselves often more than we love the Lord. I mean, you think about it, all of us, perhaps many of you have taken Christmas pictures or family pictures, and when you do, you know, you click that digital snapshot. And after you do... You know, somebody, a lot of times it's the ladies, they want to see what does the picture look like. We all look at the picture and the picture's up there. And Who do you look for first? You look for you. And if you look good, you know, your eyes are open, good picture, you say. Doesn't matter if your brother's hair is sticking up or if the baby has their hand in the other person's face. You're a good picture because you're looking for you first. We look for ourselves. We look for ourselves. But what maintains a person in their labor for the Lord is if they love the Lord and their motivation is motivated by a love for God. Second Corinthians, Paul explains that when he says in chapter 5, for the love of Christ con controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. He died for all so that they who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus died for us so that what? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So let me ask you, who or what do you live for? Who or what do you live for every day? Whom do you serve? Why do you serve? Why do you labor? 
It's your motivation because you love God? Because you want to please Him? Or is it because you serve out of guilt or it's just my job or everyone else is so I'd better do this or I have to do this or my parents will not be happy or whatever it may be. Because if you do, you know what? Sometime when you're doing it all by yourself, you're going to say, why do I have to do this? Why me? Why? And there's a griping or complaining or begrudging rather than the attitude of what a privilege it is to serve God. What an honor it is to serve the Lord. Somebody wrote me an email just yesterday dropping me a note just to encourage me and let me know that they are praying for me. And they said, quote, as you prepare for the privilege of preaching God's word tomorrow, may you be encouraged and refreshed, unquote. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to come, to serve God, to give to God, to say, God, Lord, I Lift up my life to you. Everything that I do, may it be for your glory as we have just sung. Simply put, our attitude when it comes to laboring for God, our attitude is an indicator, isn't it? Our attitude is an indicator of how much we love God and what our motivation is, isn't it? I mean, if it's a motivation that is motivated by love, our attitude won't be sour, it won't be complaining, it won't be grumbling, because it will be a joy. Is our labor motivated properly by the love of God? Thirdly, not only is it a work that is born out of faith, a labor that comes from our love from God, or thirdly, a steadfastness of hope, a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. To be steadfast means to endure or persevere, or stand firm. And it's from a Greek word, hupomone, which conveys the idea of endurance. It conveys the idea of perseverance. In fact, it conveys a similar idea as the reformers had when they were, during the Reformation of the doctrine of, of uh, the perseverance of the saints. Staying under pressure, that's what it means. To stay under pressure. And it's closely related to that theological concept. There's nothing that should cause a true Christian, true Christian to lose his complete trust in God and his promises. First John 5 tells us, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world, and with that faith comes a staying power, not in and of ourselves, but born by the Spirit of God, which keeps us in Him. Steadfast. That's what it means. Hope. Steadfastness of hope. And biblical hope, you see, is not like how we often use hope. We hope that, well, some of you students who are in school may hope that it will snow so that you have more vacation. Some will hope that it doesn't snow because you don't want to drive. 
Others hope that this afternoon the Seahawks will win so that they have home field advantage through the playoffs. But you know, it's not a sure thing because the last two, we had hoped that they would tie it up by now. But biblical hope is far different than what we hope for because biblical hope is a sure thing. There is the hope of Jesus' coming. And that hope is a secure hope because of the promises of God. Because your hope is only as good as what you're hoping in. And we hope in a God who is faithful. The steadfastness of hope, furthermore, it says, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord connotes his sovereignty of his lordship. We learned over Christmas, Jesus means the Lord who saves. And Christ is the Greek word, the equivalent of Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And so our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord who is the anointed Savior. He alone saves. Jesus alone saves. Acts 4.12 tells us that, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Their hope was in Christ, and it was steadfast. It was unwavering, without a doubt, no questions, no quandaries. Do you know when students go off to college, there's always the fear and concern by parents, it seems, whether or not their children will stand firm in their faith, whether or not their kids will be led away by professors who are anti-Christian. My encouragement to you, especially who are collegiates, is to be strong and to stand firm and unwavering like Timothy, who received his heritage of faith from his mother and his grandmother, don't allow that heritage to be persuaded and dissuaded away from what you had learned, from what is true, from the Word of God. And the Spirit of God, for those who are believers, will help you to be steadfast in hope. And Paul's praise here, Paul's praise here for these first three verses, his praise is to God. His thankfulness is to the Lord because their faith, their faith produced good works. Their love for God continued to motivate them to do so much for him and to live for him. And they were strong in their faith because their hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I thought about this last Sunday of the year, this last Sunday in 2013, and I thought about all that God had done in the church, in our church, in the lives of people through this past year, I thought to myself, what a long list of things I am so grateful for. For those who have come out of the church, who have gone into the ministry, for those that have given their lives to the Lord and salvation, I think of the scores of people who characterize the things that are seen here, a love for God that motivates them to labor, and of true faith that helps them to work, to do good things. 
They have a faith that causes them to spend evenings working here or weekends serving the Lord because it's not a sacrifice, it's a labor that is born out of love. I received a call even the other day from a family that wanted to know what are the needs here because they wanted to help serve more. I've received gifts that people have entrusted to me to pass on to someone else anonymously to whom might be the neediest, perhaps. There have been those whom God has given salvation to and others whom God has given them a new lease on life by saving their life. I know that there are those who coordinate ministries and things each week who without me ever asking, send flowers, visit the sick, make food for those who have just given birth, who had surgery, or for those who are having a difficult time and the loss of a loved one, who show the compassionate care that is characteristic of a church that loves God. There are many who want to start up a ministry and want to do this for God and want to do that for God, and without asking, they just decide that they'd like to serve God. They want to lead a small group or they want to disciple someone, not to mention again the scores of people who in various capacities use their God-given gifts in this church. And it makes me so grateful to God for what God is doing. Because there is a spiritual dynamic that is here that I hope that you can see. That as you look back on this year in 2013, you too will feel like Paul and say, He, we give thanks to God always for all of you because of these things. We give thanks to God because there is a dynamic here where the Spirit of God has worked in the lives of people who desire to grow, who desire to learn, who desire to be discerning, who desire to encourage that we might grow together as a church and continue to do so. doesn't matter, you see, how easy or how difficult your personal year has been, whether you've gained things or lost things or how your health is or how your health isn't. We can be grateful to God for the church, for what he has given to us here, for this body and for the people. So let's end this year. Let's end this year with a thankful heart to God because it is God who has done great things for us. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, Oh God, we are so prone to being so short-sighted, to seeing only the things that we can touch and feel and experience. But God, may we see the things that you are doing, and may we open our eyes to see the greatness of your love, to realize, oh God, that it is by your grace that we have what we have, that we are what we are, that we do what we do. For without you, God, we know that we would be lost, hopeless, and that, Father, 
we are grateful for your Son who has given us life. And I thank you, Father, for this church family, for the love that is here, and the care and the fellowship. And I pray, Father, may you cause us to grow in the likeness of your Son in the coming year that we might serve you for your glory and your name's sake forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.